A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's My Favorite Case. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case they worked or a case that they lived through. Some are high profile, some you've never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Our guest today has many stories to tell. He is a former FBI profiler. John Douglas, who is also a prolific writer and a New York Times bestselling author many, many, many times over. John, we're so excited to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Oh, this is great that we have so much to talk about. You know, for those of you, you many of you probably know who John is, but for those of you who may not, John is often referred to as the founding father of criminal profiling. I mean, that's amazing that his protocols are used to this day to identify the characteristics of the criminal that is being hunted. And um, also, John has been the inspiration for characters in Silence of the Lambs and Criminal Minds and now Mindhunter. So you've inspired um, many, many characters from your true life experiences. You've also, uh, John, interviewed some of the most notorious killers and serial killers of our lifetime. I, I just and, and you managed to sit there with a smile on your face, which is amazing. Yeah, but there were times in my life where it was it was rough. And, and any, any of your fans here, too, who followed me know I nearly died in 1983 on the Green River murder case. I collapsed in my hotel room. I felt uh, even before I went out on that trip that something was going to happen to me. I was training a couple of hundred New York City cops. And during my presentation, I was just all over the country. I didn't know where I was half the time, then out of the country. And I started, I thought I was having a heart attack. And what it was, was an anxiety attack. And I'm saying to myself, John, you gotta regroup, you know, regroup, you know, and I did, I did. And probably no one even detected anything, but I knew when I went back to Quantico that I have to take out life, more life insurance, income protection. I'm only 38 years of age. I'm working, you know, at any given time, 50 to 100, 100 cases. In my career, I've done over 5,000 cases, both directly and supervised and agents, you know, working working with me. But when I went out to Seattle, I had a tremendous headache. And what happened was, is that uh, I had two agents I had to break in and, uh, and, and give them, show them the ropes on, on how you go about doing this, how do you go before a task force. I said goodbye to my wife two times that day, once at home, once at school. And she said, why are you telling me this? You don't look well. And I said, well, I got this pain in my side of my head. But I have to go out there. I have to have to break the, these people in. So I go out, feel like I'm getting flu-like symptoms. And uh, I, I go before the task force. And then I tell the two agents when I get back to the hotel, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to have to stay in bed here for a couple of days. I'll see you Friday. It's now Tuesday. I put the not disturbed sign on my door. And that night I collapsed on my hotel room floor oh, and God. no one disturbs me now for the next three oh, days. Oh no. Oh days. no. Yeah. So what happened is that when they kicked down the door, they find me in a, in a coma. I'm in a frog-like position. And when they take me to ER, what they found the right side of my brain had, had split. I had 104 to 107 degree body temperature causing me to go into a coma, causing me to be paralyzed. And, and uh, I was in that coma for a week, came out of it paralyzed and how to go through all this, this rehab, uh, five months of rehab, the bureau's gonna give me a disability, I didn't want a disability. And, oh. uh, it was, and it was like I said, I was 38. And so 
I went through all of that. Uh, when I, I'm out of work five or six months, I go back to work. Cases are piling up. They give me help now. But it takes about two years to train somebody in, in yeah. this. And, and that takes about five years to make it pretty good. But by then, usually they start getting burned out and they want to do something else. So here, here comes the cases. I, I have all these cases, including this case that I wrote about uh, when a killer calls. And I don't know. And if I still have it with with me, I don't know if I got it got it in me because yeah. my brain had been fried to a crisp, and and so there's brain damage, and uh, the the bureau is calling me. I'm in a hospital a month in Seattle, Washington, and the, all the directors and the assistant directors are calling, and I can hardly talk. I, I was just taken off a life support system, and and I said I don't think I'll be able to use my left hand anymore, I, and I, and I, I was all I was paralyzed on that side. And they said, all we want, John, is your brain. We just want your brain. So, but oh I'm thinking, God. this is what I'm thinking. Of. The brain is gone too. <laughs> the, brain is, <laughs> the brain is gone. Little do they know. So I, have a lot, I'm, so I go back and I'm just a, a very emotional. I, I came and watched a Lassie movie. I did, and, and, and then when I was in that coma, I thought, I thought I was in hell. They, they had a, a body before them in this ER with doll-like eyes that, that were not blinking. My digestive system uh, sh- shut down. Uh, uh, and as far as they know, uh, and they, when they told my family, if he comes out of it, he's going to be in a vegetative state. But what I felt like, I thought I was in hell. And I thought I was being murdered. And the reason for that is, is that to the doctors and the nurses, I had no reaction to all the IVs they were, they were putting into me. And when they put the life support system down my throat, I thought someone was going to kill me. Someone's trying to kill me now because it's all this silence, but, but they don't see me you know, struggling. And so all of a sudden I hear this voice and it's a nurse saying, John, you're, you're very sick. You're a Swedish hospital in Seattle, Washington. And we're going to make you well, we're going to make you better. And hearing that voice, I, I, in, they didn't see a change, but to me, I just, relaxed internally and everything went dark. And then when I woke up a week later, you know, then I see I'm paralyzed. Where, where am I? I can't, I can't talk because they just put that, put up the, uh, uh, the life support system. So I was a basket case. And I was kind of angry at the FBI because I, I've been trying to get help and I couldn't keep this pace up. I, I'm traveling a third of the year. I don't even know where I am half the time when I, when I wake up. So you're recovering from this horrific health crisis caused by the level of stress that you're dealing with. And that will give everyone, this is the backdrop in which John now enters this horrific case. And this is the inspiration for this book, When a Killer Calls. This is a case that has haunted you forever. And the case goes back to May 31st of 1985, when a young woman named Sherry Smith was abducted from her driveway in South Carolina just two days before her high school graduation. The abduction rocked her small town, triggered a massive manhunt. And that's when the FBI was brought in. And here you are, John, recovering. And you're questioning your yourself, like, do I still have it, even though you're like the guy? And, and, and you've got her family depending on you to figure out where the daughter is and who took the daughter. Right. Uh, initially, what happens, uh, Anna, is that the, the sheriff and the undersheriff come to the FBI Academy. They're National Academy graduates, meaning they attend an 11-week course. 
And they picked up, that's where they learned about this new investigative techniques, uh, criminal profiling, crime analysis, whatever you want to call it. So they come and they give us the uh, the case materials on this one, the one victim, Sherry Faye Smith. And from that, we can tell from the recordings and, and from the, the modus operandi that we're not dealing with a kid here. We're, we're dealing with a, a criminally sophisticated, we, we, we say organized offender, uh, where it's premeditated, uh, there's very little evidence left behind initially, but just the boldness of him abducting this first victim from the mailbox as her house sits back about 200 yards from the road. And the father's looking out the window and he sees his daughter pull alongside of the mailbox and gets out, getting the mail. He walks out of the office. He's in, he comes back five minutes later, the car is still there. He goes down to the mailbox and then he sees that the car is still running. Her purse is on the seat, which is critical because in that purse, uh, she is a diabetic, a type, form of diabetes that if she doesn't have this, these, uh, uh, this prescription, she requires a gallon of water an hour if she doesn't take that prescription here. So that is the, the backdrop. So we, from this and from the information and some of the tapes, this guy is calling the victims up and claiming responsibility uh, for the crime. He's using some kind of device to uh, change the pitch and tone of his of his voice. So we, we're gathering all this information and we have, and really it's, it's a lot of information. You don't usually have the guy's voice. And we, we know his, his, the modus operandi, but we don't know why. So Sherry's 17 years old and the abductor is bold enough to call her family, correct? And right. starts a dialogue with them, which is like the most frightening thing. I don't know which is yeah. worse, hearing from yeah. the abductor or not. I never had a case. I mean, I've been a view like Dennis Schrader, the BTK Strangler, did a book on him. Uh, he called the police. He called the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the newspaper media, interviewed David Berkowitz, the son of Sam in New York City. He contacted the Detective Joe Borelli, J Jimmy Breslin. You know, we had the Zodiac. He's made contacts, too, but never where a guy now is taunting, giving them a really false hope that the, the daughter is still alive. So he makes those calls. And then what happens two days later, he, he said, uh, I'm going to be sending you a letter. This letter is coming from your, your daughter and, and uh, in about two days. And so we rush down to the post office. We retrieve the, the letter. And in the letter, it's titled Last Will and Testament, Last Will and Testament. And up in the, the left hand corner of the letter, uh, the time is 310. We believe that's the time after she writes this letter, she's going to be she's going to be murdered. But in the letter, she's saying, uh, I want a closed casket. Uh, I miss you, mommy and daddy. I love you, you uh, Robert, her brother and Richard, her her boyfriend. And it's a, a good a, a goodbye uh, you know, letter here. He waits a couple of days now and then he makes another another call. Uh, to the family. And now Dawn, the other daughter, is getting involved in these telephone calls. And she's a little, couple years older and looks just like her, her younger sister. And, uh, and what he now provides is, is directions where we can find the body. And you can tell, and as was part of the profile, he was following a script. He's obsessive compulsive. And if you ask a question, it throws him off because it, it, he, he has it all scripted out. Ah, interesting. And, and then the reason why he wastes a few days, Anna, is because from, uh, from my experience here, and it was 100 degrees when we were down there, 
he wants decomposition of the body. He wants advanced stages of decomposition. So it'll be difficult for the ME to determine method and cause of death. And it'd be difficult to determine even if the victim was sexually assaulted, difficult retrieving forensic you know, evidence. So sure enough, he gives us this obsessive compulsive directions to the, to the location uh, where, uh, you know, where we can find her. He then stops calling. He then stops calling. And then all of a sudden there's another, 10 days later, there's another abduction of a, of a, a nine-year-old girl named Deborah Helmick. And, and he will later call the family, the first family, and say that he is responsible. So we have this, this abduction of this girl, and then he will then uh, call up in the first family and give directions to Dawn, to the, to the victim's sister, where we can find that body. If you struggle to figure out what to make for dinner each night, it might be time to check out HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week so you can get the convenience without skimping on the quality. Skip those trips to the grocery store and say goodbye to those long lines. HelloFresh offers the flexibility that you need to easily customize your order online or in the app. You can change your delivery day, your food preferences, the plan size, or you can even skip a week whenever you need to. And HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. And I have to tell you that I've always been really impressed with the produce. As you know, it can be a struggle these days to find really fresh produce. And I can tell you, I was really, it's like the stuff had just been picked what they sent to my box. Really impressive. So go to HelloFresh.com slash TCD16 and use code TCD for True Crime Daily 16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash TCD16. Don't forget to use the code TCD16 for up to 16 free meals and the three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. So Dawn, who is Sherry's sister here, I mean, it's like a further traumatization, really. I mean, they're being traumatized all over again. Now, at this point in the case, John, when he has abducted the second girl and he is calling the family of the first girl, have you now found Sherry's body at this point? Was he accurate? Yes. Yeah, he was very right town. So and we found it in the research too. the killers would go back to the, to the scenes of the crime for different reasons uh, to fantasize, relive the crimes. Ted Bundy did it. He was involved in necrophilia with, with, the, with his victims. So so we, we, he went back and he measured he measured distances that he provides. Same thing with the second victim. Now with the second victim and now I'm brought down now because because now we, we have a serial killer here. He's going to kill again. So by the time I get down there and I get down to South Carolina, I want to meet the family of the cops. I'm going to be going through everything. And the sheriff tells me, Sheriff Jim Ness, he said, John, he stopped. He stopped calling. He stopped calling. And so I tell him, I'll get him to call. Uh, I'll get him to call. How? Said, How did you get him to call? I said, well, let me go meet the family. So I go over and I meet the uh, entire family, which is heartbreaking, very religious, uh, religious family. It just crushes you to, to, to see them and deal with them. And I, I meet Dawn because I, I, I was sensing, I'm sensing things that I'm not going to be initially telling about loud, but, but I can see the killer is focusing on Dawn. He stopped calling. I'm thinking of using Dawn now as bait. I'm going to use her as bait. So I'm as I, I'm 
and I also I get Don. I said, Don, show me Sherry's bedroom, please. We go to Sherry's bedroom and I see she collects koala bears. And so I'm looking at the koala bears and I'm thinking ahead now and I'm thinking of, of how I can draw him out. And it's going to be through a memorial service. I'm going to have a memorial service for this victim. And I find a little koala bear about, you know, so, so big. We pinch the shoulders and the arms yeah, open yeah. up. And it's hanging on a string. Yeah. And I take that. I go back in, into the living room and the family and the collapse are there. And, and I said, Miss Smith, uh, there's something I wanted to do. And I kind of hemming and hawing. I said, John, what is it? What, what? I said, this killer here, he, he's focusing on your daughter, but I think I can, we, I can get him to call again. We got to get him to call. I want to show Don how to keep him on the telephone using hostage negotiation, uh, and, you know, techniques. But, but so as I'm telling him this, he said, but John, what if he, he's, he's going to come here and kill my daughter? He had an obvious concern. He yeah. said, I lost one daughter. Now I got, I may lose another daughter. And I said, based upon this particular type of offender we're dealing with, this inadequate nobody, he's not the type that's going to be driving up in the driveway here. And we'll, your daughter will have 24-hour protection with that daughter. But I want to have this memorial service, Mr. Smith, with the family. I want, I, and I, I want to meet with an investigative reporter, I tell Sheriff Metz, because I want a story to be written. Because, because I know the killer from my research follows the press. I want to manipulate his behavior and I want him to go to that memorial service. So I tell him what to do, how to uh, uh, come up with a uh, podium. We're going to paint white. We're going to have the picture of Sherry Face Smith laminated you know, on top of, of this podium. Uh, Dawn is going to place the, the koala bear on, on a flower at the, at the scene and uh, we're going to st stake it out. The problem was from only from an investigative perspective is that she was buried very close to the road or very, very close. It would have been better had she been back, but we can't change that back in the cemetery. So we will then stake this out. This will not be the way he will get become apprehended. But if we didn't catch him this other way, we would have gone this way because because she was very close to the road. We were jotting down place. And we got his plate. We, in retrospect, we got, and and all we had to but do. But you didn't know it at the time that you had his plate. No, we didn't know. We didn't. We didn't know it. I was hoping. I was hoping. I knew he would do something like this because the ego of him and the calls, you know, to the, you know, to the to the families. So we would have found out that this uh, that this guy Larry Jean Bell, uh, you know, ha had this criminal history uh, of like like the profile, the abductions. He went to prison for five years. Abducted uh, a girl. He he was sending obscene telephone calls to a, a nine-year-old girl many many years ago. He was divorced. He's white. We also said he had electronic background, electricity. She had he had that. He had that in his in his background as well. He was an electrician as a trade, correct? Electrician. But how he, he how he got caught? Now should I tell you? Listen, what the heck? Publisher, publisher won't like it. What the? This is so. What how? what when the last will and testament was written, it was written on a legal uh, pad. And, and, and your viewers and listeners know that if you write on a pad, just because, because you, you know, you, you write here and you rip it off underneath, there could be some indented writing. Even right, from the previous page. Right. Even if there's several pages, there's a machine that can pick up indented writing that's way, way down, you know, deep in that. And so... This was sent off to uh, the lab, the GBI, Georgia Bureau of, of Investigation, and they come back and they see 
what they found was a shopping list with grocery list, but also there was a telephone number, a telephone number. And on the a telephone partial number, right? It was a partial, partial number. number, but really good. Missing just one digit. The prefix t- took us to Alabama. Uh, the, the area code. The prefix then took us to Huntsville, Alabama. And then the next four digits, all but one digit uh, was missing. So through the process of elimination, boom, we go, we get a number, takes us back, takes us back to Columbia, South Carolina, where this crime takes place. And so they're all excited. The cops are excited. There's a guy named uh, uh, Ellis, uh, uh, the Shepherd family, Ellis Shepherd, And they go knocking on his door, thinking this is the guy. And the guy comes to the door. He doesn't fit the profile, the Douglas profile. He's a, he's a middle-aged guy and, and, and uh, he's got this house, his wife is there and everything. So they invite him in and they said, let me, let me just tell you something. We've had this crime. We've had this crime here. And he said, oh, with these, the two victims? Oh yeah, how do you know about it? Well, I, we were away for six weeks. Uh, Larry Jean Bell, who will be the suspect, was staying at our house. He was house sitting uh, for us. But we came back after six weeks, his appearance had changed. And that was in our profile too. He, he, was, uh, uh, he lost all kinds of weight. He didn't have a beard. He grew, uh, he grew out a beard and he had newspaper clippings of the crime. So that's another thing apart from the profile. Wow. Yeah, the clippings, the clippings uh, you know, of this. And so, and, and so they gave the age and everything of, uh, of our profile and the, the husband and wife are looking at each other. And oh, by the way, here's a tape. Listen to the tape. Uh, uh, on some of the tapes. So they played some of the tapes of a uh, subject calling the first victim's family, the Smith family, and they look at each other. It's, it's Larry Jean Bell. Well, who is he? He's an electrician helper. He helps me. He's an electrician helper for me. He's been house sitting for six days. And can we look around here? Can we look around in the room? And they find the, his bedroom. Uh, the first thing they find is that is that his gun was misplaced. He gave him a gun uh, you know, for protection. He lived in a rural area. It was misplaced, but it was fired once. Uh, and, sh- and he never fired it, Mr. Uh, Shepard. Also, they're looking through the mattress. Uh, and under the mattress, there's a bondage magazine uh, of a woman in a crucifix. And this, this case will involve this bondage in a way through suffocation. You know, actually the victim, that's how she's going to, she's going to die. So we do all this. We, and uh, the rest is going to be made. So Mm -hmm. how was Sherry killed? And then how was the little girl killed? And did you find her body? Uh, The, the the medical examiner, when he, we went over the, the, the crime with the medical examiner here, she died of, uh, of suffocation as well as the second. And how we know that, it was still duct tape residue on the face. But you see, he was, he was criminally sophisticated enough to know to remove the duct tape so it wouldn't have any fingerprints on the duct tape. And we could tell, too, it was around her head because, because her hair was cut to, to remove, the, uh, to remove mm. the duct tape. Could not tell whether or not she was sexually assaulted. But he's telling us in his communications that he made love or his, his audio tapes, he made love, you know, to uh, Sherry and he and oh. Sherry sexually assaulted the second victim. Horrible. So we have two girls who have been murdered. You have now identified who you think is the killer based on a partial phone number that left an imprint on the letter that was sent to the victim's family, which is unbelievable. This memorial that you set up, really, you find out later that you drew him out. He he went there. He went to the memorial. You got his license plate. 
We had to, if we didn't get him this other way, we'll, we definitely would have got him, you know, you know, this way here. So now, now we have a name and now what's next? The next is going to be an interrogation, right? How was this guy arrested? How'd you get he was him? arrested? Just, he was, it was another thing. He was living with his mother and father. Just waiting. Oh my to, God. Right. You know, How typical is that? I tried. He was 30, like he's 35 years of age. And as he came out of the house, they got him, you know, you know, right there. And, and, uh, and he made a comment. You're, you're probably stopping me because of, of those two girls, uh, those two girls that, uh, you know, you know, were missing or, or died. I don't think he said died, so we're missing. And, and so so they bring him there back to the uh, to the sheriff's department. But what I had them do is and, uh, like I became like a uh, like a developing like a scene set. I, I created a task force building a room that never existed didn't exist and they had a trailer out back that they got in a drug deal and they made that a a task force room with signs on the outside you know you know task force crime task force and when he went in there he went had the range so when he walked in there he saw pictures of himself his residence where he lives arrows pointing to the abduction sites of the victims, arrows then pointing to the shepherds where he was staying the weekend, files with his name outside the victims, just to show that this has been one thorough and held investigation. So they were out there. I'm waiting now. I coached the guys, but I'm, I'm waiting back in the undersheriff's office and waiting throughout the day. And they're not getting anywhere, you know, on this with this guy, because after what do you realize that when you do these interviews is how am I going to get this guy to confess to me when right. and the, they got the death penalty? Number one, they got the death penalty in South Carolina. And number two, he's a child killer. And so and he's, and he's that, also like crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's crazy, but but he's crazy, but he's he knows right from wrong. He's he's sane. He knows the nature and consequences of his actions. He will play crazy, though. That's why. And I, and I want him to play crazy. I just want to get him to admit to something. So I'm waiting with, uh, I've had another agent with me, Ron Walker. All of a sudden, the, they call them solicitors down in South Carolina. The solicitor and the sheriff come in and, and uh, they bring him in where, I'm, where I am. And, and typical South, I love South Carolina. He says, you know who these boys are here? These boys are from the FBI, the FBI. And that guy there, John Douglas, he did a profile that fits you to a T, Larry. It fits you to a T. And they're going to leave you with these boys here. So they walk out. And they walk out. <laughs> I'm not prepared for this. And it was kind of weird because when I got the call, we had this guy. It was like about 2 in the morning at a minute some Chief Motel, South Carolina, and I put on this white outfit, like a white shirt, and it was a, a white slacks, I, and, and and almost looked clinical. And it was in retrospect, that's kind of good. It didn't look FBI-ish, looked clinical. So they bring him in, into me, and I had no plans for this. Okay, take a seat. So so he sits down on the couch. I sit down in, in on, on a chair just in front of him, but not. I want to have a conversation. I don't want to have a. I don't want to have an interrogation. I don't want to have an interview. I want to have a conversation. I want him to know about me as much as him. So I start talking to him about me, about the research I've done, uh, going to prisons. I've done interviews that really have helped me to understand, uh, you know, people who perpetrate, uh, you know, these crimes. And and, uh, and and you know what they told me, Larry, is that there was almost sometimes two sides of their personality, almost like a good and the bad. And and when they perpetrate this the crime, the next day or, or right after that. They see what they've done and they don't, 
They can't believe it. It's like, what, what did I do? What, what happened? I don't understand. It's like the good and the bad Larry Jean Bell. When did you first start feeling bad about this crime? See, that's why I segue into that. And he says, at the memorial service, I read about it. And then I went, I went to the memorial service. So I went by. So he's not admitting he did it. Yeah, you're not. And, and, uh, and I said, Larry, what do you think? Could you have done something like this? And he said, Mr. Douglas, he said, he said, the good Larry Jean Bell sitting here couldn't have done this, but the bad Larry Jean Bell, you know, could could have. And that would be the that would be the furthest we could get, you know, for the confession. And I'll, I'll end up testifying in court. You know, his goose was cooked, testifying in court. And uh, he was went before the jurors, and and uh, it, it took less than an hour to convict him. But he acted crazy in the courtroom. He has to because he's he's got he, he's he's going to get the death penalty. So he's trying to act crazy, he's nuts and everything. But it was interesting as you're watching him. I was there during the trial. He's taking notes just like he did. He's obsessive compulsive, like their notes and script he wrote for. Uh, that he read, you know, to the families you know, when, when he uh, called them. But this, what I loved about the case, and it was a, it was a great case of law enforcement coming together. And, and mm-hmm. you didn't always see that in the 80s, and particularly in the 70s, you didn't see it. It, it was, and bureaus often criticized for dominating, taking cases. And, and my program is, is, is to help police, help law enforcement. And the bureau is really going to be the last ones to embrace me. It was yeah. primarily local police local police. And by the time when I retired, we were doing a thousand cases, you know, a year. Wow. Hey, John, so I have a question then. So he didn't confess, although he was being a little cagey there. Uh, What is the evidence which was used in order to convict him? Um, Like how strong, what what was the strongest evidence? Was there DNA back then? uh, No, the victim's hair, the uh, victim's hair was found not only or that Harris found in, in uh, the shepherd's house where he was staying, but also in his, his own, he carried the hair over to his own uh, uh, house where he was living with, with his parents. The audio tapes are, because he didn't use the electronic device th- throughout all the tapes. Uh, what happens is, is they start getting confident. It's like yeah. Dennis Rader, the BTK strangler, they're untouchable and they get sloppy, they get careless. And unfortunately for law enforcement, we may have to, wait for that moment when they do get sloppy and careless. So there was just a mountain of evidence and the shepherds, they testified of him and his appearance and what they found and uh, keeping the newspaper clippings and the weight he lost. And uh, so he, his goose was cooked. So he, he received the death penalty. Then he was on death row for like 10 years. And so I think one thing that surprised me is that rather than take lethal injection, he took the electric chair because he's such a coward. But I think, I think what it is is because he uh, he is so on the low on the totem pole in, in in the prison hierarchy, low, and and the guards hate you, the inmates despise you, you coward, you weakling, and everything. And they just as the last you know hurrah, you want to show how tough he is. And so he took the the the, the, the electric chair, the tough way uh, to uh, you know to be executed. Well, I was just thinking he was a, an electrician, so I kind of saw oh, the yeah. synergy there. Hey, yeah, that's <laughs> right. I never thought of that. Yeah. Uh, oh, hey, I love that. I was good, able good. to share a clue yeah. with a great shot. <laughs> yeah. no, oh, yeah. It's a it's a new yeah. high for me. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I, that's what I was thinking, that that was the synergy there with yeah. his his affinity to it. Now, what I find interesting, you talked about how there was this this bondage magazine or photo under his mattress. One of the things that he went on and on about in court and also while on death row was screaming that he was Jesus Christ, screaming that the Mona Lisa was really a man, um, all his outbursts. In fact, I read that while he was on death row, he drove the other inmates insane because of his consistent screaming that was driving everybody else crazy. Yeah. Well, well, it'll make you crazy just being in prison and death, death row for a period of time. But but it's still, he had all these appeals. He's, he had appeal, appeal, appeal. So he's hoping that one of these appeals are going to go, uh, you know, come through for him, which they, they uh, you know, did not. But that was predicted. I predicted that to uh, Donnie Myers was the, uh, it was a prosecutor, a uh, solicitor down there and that this would happen the first day. And sure enough, that happened the very, very first day. See, that's another thing we add. A lot of people think all we do are serial murder cases or just profiling. No, it's just there's so much that we, we offer to the victims of the crimes, to, to prosecutors on cross-examination strategies. That was big for me in the Atlanta child killings with uh, Wayne Williams. I coached the, the prosecution, did the profile, but also pro- coached the, the, uh, the prosecution. Uh, and they use you uh, for probable cause and search warrant. Not the, not the profile. It should never be used, that profile, because there's too many variables and it could fit people that have nothing to do with anything. But where I have been able to testify is is linkage where whoever did these series of rapes, that's my opinion, say there's 10 of them, that's certainly the I can link these five here, these cases here. How can you do that, Mr. Douglas, based on the verbal, the sexual and the physical assault uh, you know, of the, the victim and the geographics of where they, they took place? So you can t- testify to that. And sometimes prosecutors want to get you in there profiling. No, no, no. And, and unfortunately, there's been some agents who have done that and they had cases Cases reverse, and there's even been some wrongful convictions you know, I've seen. So you never, you never should, uh, you know, testify to that. You mm-hmm. most, again, you're a coach, and, and it's the police, the police case. You know, you're trying to help help them. So, John, I'm curious. Uh, now that you know technology has changed so significantly, and now we're seeing the use of DNA technology to solve all these old, old cold cases or identify victims who have never been identified murder victims. I'm curious as to whether you see a shift in criminal investigation that that maybe is heavier on, let's say, DNA and forensics, because that has become, the you know, the gold standard versus what you do with the profiling. Like, I, I'm just wondering what, what's happening. Now, hopefully you do have the, the forensics. You always hope there's, there's a, the forensics. Uh, but uh, there's still there, there's still a lot of cases. People ask me how many how many serial killers. I just say serial killers are there, and and, and I've always said going way back in the late seventies and at least thirty five to, to fifty over the years. You know, and now I'm meeting people saying, well, we don't we don't hear about uh, these cases. I mean, I, I think it's kind of numbed us unless there's something really outrageous about them. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is a uh, there was a a, a group that has done a, uh, a murder accountability program called MAP. And they estimate that right now that they could be as many as 2000 serial killers in the oh United my States. God. The Bureau, the, the Bureau I used, to, used to be three or more killings with a period in between each of the killings. There's mm-hmm. a time effect. Then the Bureau knocked off one and it, for some reason, and now it's down to two. When you think of 
how many unsolved murders there are. See, we have 17,000 law enforcement agencies in the country, and 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 they don't all talk to each other. They're not all trained the, the same, you know, the same way. You have that as an issue. So you have an abduction in in Virginia, and the person takes the victim over, say, to Tennessee somewhere. That, that guy has gone to multiple jurisdictions. Are, are they communicating? Are they talking with each other? So we have that. So we have a clearance rate. The chance of getting away with murder, you have about 40 percent, uh, in some cities, a greater chance of getting away with murder. And then you have over 40,000 at any given time unidentified dead in morgues in the country. Mm-hmm. And after a period of time, then if, if they can't come up with an ID, they will then cremate or bury these victims to make room for the other other uh, unsolved uh, uh, cases that, that are coming in. And so you give me any city that has from from uh, street people to to uh, women, uh, they called sex workers. Now you have runaways. These are easy pickings for mm-hmm. someone who's so inclined to perpetrate a serial whatever rape, murder, whatever. Wow. It's just, you know, I've always uh, disliked covering serial killers. That's always been while you're fascinated on one side, I personally like it just creeps me out. I'm able to handle a lot of things. I've been doing this a long time, but there's just something about serial killer cases that really undo me. And I think I think the thing about a serial killer is I find them. I can't figure them out their brains like other murderers. You may not obviously ever agree with their rationale. But they have one. Right. And there is a purpose usually or sometimes it's a random, random killing and it's an overreaction. A serial killer like, you know, there's a level of of for me, it's evil. But I know that there's something in the brain. Uh, and, and that is the part I, I just I can't stand. Yeah, it's part. It's always like a nature nurture uh, type of uh, type of question. And what we kind of we use an analogy as a, as a weapon is that the, the, the DNA uh, you know, points the gun, but it really, it, you know, it, it's the personal life experiences of that individual decide whether or not they, uh, you know, they squeeze, you know, the trigger. And there are different kinds of serial killers. They're not all, and a lot of times the, the media kind of generalize it, but there, there are different types. But one of the, one of the, the major things is these are, these are crimes of anger and power, sex, it's it could be a sexual component, but it's really secondary. It's really really they're playing God. Many of them. One of the worst serial killers I talked to was a guy named uh, Bitteker in California who died recently, and he would uh, torture his victims with an, another guy. And they, their fantasy while they were incarcerated in California system was to rape a teenager for every year of a teenager's life. And so after they rehabilitated and let them out of prison, they get get a murder Mac. They call it a murder Mac, a van. They insulated the interior of the van because once they get the victim inside, no one can hear the screams and yells. And what was nauseating when I interviewed nauseating to me, uh, because when I'm looking at the killer, I'm thinking this is what the victim was looking at, but was nauseating. And I made Scott Glenn listen to this one. Uh, They made the the movie Silence of the Lambs. And he was portraying me very loosely portraying uh, portraying me, but I made them listen to the tapes. They made audio tapes of the torture, the torturing of these of these victims. And then these two guys would sit around afterwards, you know, a drink, having a drink, and they're lazy boy, and like you know, reliving the crime, but like humorous. And so I brought a a, a woman agent uh, with me when we did the interview. It was interesting uh, because she would ask a question, and he would never really look at her. 
he would, he, he, she would ask a very good question. She was, and kept soft spoken. He would always look, you know, look at, you know, yeah. at me. Never, mm-hmm. he would destroy her in a second. And the only time he felt anything is we brought something up about his family, early childhood. Mm-hmm. And it's always that you do find it in the backgrounds with someone, this dysfunction in the backgrounds of them. But it's not to say someone who comes from a dysfunctional family is going to grow up to be a violent anything. But yeah. of the ones we've interviewed, we certainly have seen that in, in early childhood things such as animal cruelty, which is a big one. That's a precursor yeah. that, uh, that we track. I, I, you know, I covered this case of a serial killer for Crime Watch Daily out of Baton Rouge. And, and this was after, you know, he'd been arrested. He had he always preyed on uh, women who are sex workers. And then he would throw them in the back of the car. He would chop them up. He would then pose them in garbage dumps, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he did this while his live in girlfriend was at work. So he would drive her to work and then start his thing. And then he would bring them the bodies home, chop them up or wash them up or do what he needed to do in the kitchen. And they still this woman, his ex-girlfriend still lived in that house, still had the car in which he drove the bodies in. And, you know, I when I'm like, I I went into the bathroom, okay, and because I had to go. And I swear to you, John, I'm in the bathroom and all of a sudden I have this like feeling like this overwhelming, like <gasps> there was nothing wrong with the bathroom other than I was overwhelmed by a feeling. I come out, I finish the interview. We did it in the kitchen where the man chopped the bodies. Okay. So already I'm disgusted by this whole thing. And then, you know, I go to talk to the cops afterwards and then they tell me, and I didn't know this at the time. I swear I didn't know this, that one of the things that he admitted to doing was he cut off the hands of one of his victim and he took it into the bathroom and he was playing with the hands in the bathroom while his girlfriend was outside and she didn't know that he had stashed the hands in there. And then when I heard that from the cops, I'm like, oh my God, that is why I had such an overwhelming like feeling in the bathroom where that happened. So the serial killer was Sean Vincent Gillis. I don't know if you ever. I've heard the name, but I've never looked into that case. Okay, and John, here's how they got Sean Vincent Gillis. So there were tire marks over by the, you know, the trash dumps where he left the bodies. And so they figured out how many of these tires were in the greater Baton Rouge area. And then they went to all of the tire stores. And then they got a list of all the people who had bought this particular tire. And then the task force literally went knocking at every door of everyone who's ever bought one of these tires. You're going to love this, John. So the, the, you know, the cops knocking on the door, the man who answers the door, it's too much. He's got a Star Trek belt on. Okay. (laughs) You would have profiled that one, right? It's like, obviously. And so he says, hi, do you own this kind of attire? You know, we're just, and he says, oh yeah, you know, I knew one of the victims. And so the FBI is like, oh my God, (laughs) the man owns the tires. He's got a Star Trek belt on and he says he knows one of the victims and volunteers this. So um, they asked everyone for a volunteer DNA swab. And so he voluntarily does the swab and the cops, they go back to the task force. They surround the entire neighborhood because they don't want this guy getting out, but they can't arrest him. They rush the DNA swab, but they I mean, there's because they're afraid he's going to go out and kill again. The DNA results come in like as fast as humanly possible and they arrest him on the spot. 
spot and take him in. And then he confesses to this and all uh, these other murders. But I was it was, was just police work. Oh, isn't that I mean, yeah. that was exactly how they did it. Knocking yeah. on doors, following the tires. Yeah, that's yeah. A very good department. Yeah, I, I've done some cases down there. They've had their share of serial killers. Like you mentioned, Todd, he's mm-hmm. he's uh, he's one of them. Nathaniel oh. Code was when I, I, I was involved with Code, C-O-D-E. You know, but uh, yeah, the interviews, that's how you learn. That's why I, I, I started doing the interviews. When I came back to Quantico, I was a young, I was recruited very young, 25. I was in grad school, just came out of the military and, and uh, went back to, uh, well, first to training, then to first to Detroit, then Milwaukee, and I'm working in violent, in violent crime out in the field. But when I became back as an instructor, uh, all the old, I'm only 31, just turned 30, 32. I'm one of the youngest, not only at Quantico, but one of the youngest of all of headquarters, which has over a thousand agents uh, there. But I'm hearing the senior agents tell these war stories about these cases and, and they're being challenged in the classroom. They don't have their facts correct uh, on, because the, the co- is a cop in the class who worked the case. So how, how can I accelerate my learning? And it was the, I just wanted to be a good instructor. So let's go, let's go. We're out on the road two weeks at a time teaching police. Let's go into these prisons and see if they'll if these guys will talk to us. And sure enough, you know, you know, they did. And then the bureau finds out about it and they go crazy. What the hell are you doing going into prisons? What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has a lot to do with everything. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're applying it you know, back here. And then a Dr. Ann Burgess uh, came. Uh, it came on on the scene. She was done. You know, her as a guest sometime, and and she has a uh, she had a book uh, that came out just just recently too. And she it was a forensic nurse, and she uh, did a heart attack studies up in Boston and predicting what men would have heart attacks. They looked like twenty five thousand uh, men were in the sample, and then she heard what we're doing. She was down there to work with an agent in the area of rape and rape typology, and then she she saw what we were doing and. And then sat in on us and said, you, you guys have to professionalize it. You, you have to, we have to develop an instrument, an instrument that, that you use for your interviews. And, and, and that's how it started. And, and we had 36 initially, 36 interviews that, that we did. But, but it was a type of thing, Anna, that I learned, unlike those of your fans who, who may have looked at the Mindhunter TV series, uh, I only used a tape recorder one time. And that was with Ed, Edmund Kemper, uh, because you're dealing with very paranoid individuals in, in prison. They don't tr- trust anyone. Where, who's going to be listening to this tape? Who, who are you giving this thing to? Or if you're taking notes, no good. You can't take notes. What are you writing down? Who, who's going to see this stuff? So you have to go in and memorize. You have to know the case backwards wow, and that's, Wow, that's a lot of work. And then after you, work, you leave, the first thing you do, you go back to your motel. Then you fill out. You have a lot of it filled out beforehand prior to victimology, police reports. But you want questions from him. Mm-hmm. And there's always there's always a question, you know, a, a primary question you want to you know, ask, like the BTK strangler. You know, why? Why? They just stopped killing. That's that's what I wanted to know. Wow, John, this has just been an amazing conversation. I would love to just sit here and oh, talk to you, you for hours. <laughs> I wrapped up. I saw, saw this. Go, go, go in me. <laughs> oh, I think it's I think it's magnificent. So, so John, we want to remind everyone that your new book is When a Killer Calls. I presume you can get this book wherever you buy books. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. It's all over. <laughs> it's all over the place. Uh, 
Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you for sharing oh, this. Hi. If anyone wants to follow you, I mean, obviously they can just get all your books and there are a lot yeah. of them. Um, are you, do you have a social media presence by any chance? Yeah, we have, yeah, we have a, a uh, but we haven't been keeping up, uh, you know, with that. I just, I just did a show for Fox, uh, Fox nation aired in October, if they're interested. And it's, uh, it's five, five killers, five killers that I was involved with in the investigations and, and it's on Fox nation. And what's interesting is, is I haven't seen anything like it. I am there. And they got actors that are really looks like David Burke was the son of Samuel, but I'd like, but, but I'm with them. I am with them when Berkowitz is out I'm, and I'm giving a narration as to his, the motivation, what's the purpose behind all that. Mm-hmm. So that is out. And then, you know, YouTube, they can find you on YouTube and uh, at the end of you will be doing here and I did some other, other stuff. And it yeah. was, there's a bunch of things. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I um I have so enjoyed my conversation with you. I have a million more questions for you. <laughs> oh, come on again sometime. I would love that. I yeah. would thoroughly enjoy that, John. Um, you can find me on all social media at Anna G News. You can find yeah. more episodes of My Favorite Case plus our weekly podcast, True Crime Daily. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and to our newsletter at TrueCrimeDaily.com. This has been an amazing episode of My Favorite Case. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Thank you so much for joining us. 